But this is, you're, you're exactly right that so many aspects of our lives are, are sites of extraction, whether we're employed full time or we're precariously employed or we're quote unquote gig workers or we're, you know, uh, at home for various reasons. And, you know, they're, they're ha we have to think creatively about how we can wield economic power nonetheless, because none of us are outside the economy. Welcome to the Duff Panel. To support the show and get access to the second weekly bonus episode and all of our past bonus episodes, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, you can always share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So with plugs out of the way, I am thrilled to be welcoming back friend of the panel, Marshall Steinbell. Marshall is an assistant professor of economics at University of Utah and a senior fellow in higher education finance at the Jane Family Institute. Marshall, so glad to have you back today. It's been way too long. Very happy to be back. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. And also joining us today, we have Astra Taylor. Astra is a writer, documentary filmmaker, and one of the co-founders of The Debt Collective, and has been really committed to agitating for a debt jubilee for years now. Astra, I am a big fan of your work and have been for a very long time, and it is so nice to finally have you on the show. Well, really glad to be here. So it's been a while since we've checked in on the dynamics of student loan debt. When we finished our year in review episode called COVID Year 2, which was looking at all of the ways in which the Biden administration has really laid their priorities bare through their policy actions and actually more importantly through their inactions on COVID, it became clear to us that it was also really time to check in on the discourse surrounding one of Biden's biggest campaign promises which was to cancel some degree of some student debt at some point after An being elected. shrinking amount of student right, debt. Right, if he was yes. elected, of course. And obviously that has not happened. The failure of any debt cancellation to have happened is both a COVID and a non-COVID policy failure. So since we've spent a lot of time talking about many of the other pandemic protection programs, which have been unceremoniously allowed to expire in ways which have not correlated to the state of COVID spread, we wanted to check in on this interesting and actually really different outcome of the student loan payment pause expiration, which was looming at the end of this month, but was extended at the 11th hour. So instead of ending in February 2022, it has now been extended to May 1st, 2022. <laughs> Phil actually wrote a great piece about these random expirations for all of the pandemic programs in August called The Waning of Pandemic Time, where he talked about how the majority of all of these emergency provisions, which have been enacted by Congress over the last two years, were all designed to have really specific expiration dates that are arbitrary or tied to the economic calendar rather than being tethered to the state of federal public health emergency. So as the emergency has very obviously continued, a lot of these programs like UI, like, you know, even as meager as they were, the um, eviction moratoriums, those have not been extended or renewed as part of Biden's reopening framework. So at least to my own personal surprise, the pause on student debt payments, interest accrual and collections efforts for it's not all student loans. I believe it's for only most of 
the student loans was actually suddenly extended. Um, so before we talk about some of the bigger narratives at play around debt cancellation, I want to get through some of the basics about like what this pause on payments actually has been and how student debt even works in the United States, because a lot of our listeners actually don't necessarily live in the U.S. Astra, do you think you could give us an, sort of a, a quick rundown of what happened with this latest cancellation extension? Yeah. I mean, first, I want to speak to your point about the arbitrary deadlines, because I think that's a really deep point. Part of that is this commitment to the impression that we're living through, you know, a contained emergency as though things were (laughs) good before. It's this idea we need to return to normal, you know, that nothing should fundamentally change. We should just kind of go back to how things were. And so we know, you know, through people who have leaked reports of White House meetings that the Biden administration is very concerned about turning on student loan payments because of the optics, because they don't like something that contradicts the message that things are great, the economy's booming, look at those job numbers, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, you know, as uh, as radicals as we all are, right, our thing is that normal was a crisis <laughs> and the crisis right, was, right. you know, here before COVID, COVID has exposed and intensified it. But, you know, we were organizing for student student debt cancellation before COVID. We were organizing for all of these public programs before COVID. So that's part of the the narrative we're up against. I mean, it, and it's, it is indicative of their cruelty because this idea that optics matter more than the actual conditions of people's <laughs> lives is just really fucked up. Well, <laughs> yeah, I also absolutely. think it's, it's interesting because when Biden sort of came in, there was all of this projection that was like, this is a, like an FDR type presidency. And it's like, well, if that were the case, then you would imagine like this is, I think, what's, you know, I'm fairly cynical at this point. But I think what's surprising about it to me is like an emergency is actually a you would think about it as a window of opportunity Mm -hmm. uh, to to do something or to restructure these things like it, it actually creates. I mean, the conventional wisdom in like political science is like, that's a good thing. You you should be able to like use that, especially if you're, you know, a left of center party. But I think that's the fascinating thing that, that the debt collective and at least it's some of the FOIA stuff that, that you guys have uncovered uh, is just how much they are tethered to, you know, portraying things as normal. Yeah, and a, a totally unsustainable normal that's going to destroy the earth and their own party. But nevertheless, they're committed <laughs> to it. I mean, you know, in a nutshell, I, the other thing I just want to say as a baseline for this is the payment pause is not even a Biden invention. It's a Trump policy. Right. I don't right. think that we would have even gotten such a generous payment pause. You know, you were, you were right to say it doesn't cover everyone. It covers the majority of people with federal student loans. So people with private loans are shit out of luck. I, I don't know. I really doubt that if... You know, it had been Biden's moment, right? Would he have done something as sort of big? The Biden administration, for example, could have fixed it. They could have expanded it to include these private borrowers or done something. So it's a it's a warmed over Trump policy. They absolutely didn't want to keep extending it. And um, you know, they they did they did it at the eleventh hour, as you say, because there is there was a lot of public pressure. The debt collective was a big part of that. And because obviously there's a new wave of COVID uh, and they couldn't keep up this return to normal narrative. I am grateful in my own way that they announced uh, the the payment pause extension when they did, which w- it was right before Christmas, the 22nd. I actually thought they might keep us waiting till the end of January. Same. Yeah. 
And, you know, I woke up that morning and my collaborator, Thomas Goki, who's another co-founder of the Debt Collective, did as well. We both got calls from the White House, which is a very unusual thing if you're me, saying, you know, we want to let you know that we're extending the payment pause. So I think that's a sign. Please leave us alone. Cease and desist. (laughs) See, it's nice now. They literally said, you know, spread the good word, spread the good word. Oh, God. No, I said, when are we going to hear from you that you're canceling student debt, which is your promise? Um, but the point is, they're, you know, they're paying attention to the pressure. And I think it's all the more imperative that we, as the debt collective and as the broader public and our, our allies like Marshall, just keep hammering at this because they do not want to, you know, I think they realize this is something they're weak on. I think that the broader uh, progressive leftist movement is realizing that, you know, this is one of the one of the things in 2022 we could push for and possibly get. May 1st is a very interesting symbolic day. <laughs> you know, it's May yeah. Day. Yeah. But also it's very close to the midterms. Are they really going to turn payments back on that close in the midterm? So I think we have a unique opportunity. We have more leverage. We need to keep organizing and raising hell over this because canceling student debt is low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of things that need to be done. Uh, you know, and they require big investment. They require major legislation. This is something that Joe Biden can do with a signature, and it doesn't cost anybody anything. Which I hope Marshall says more about down the road. <laughs> I certainly will say more about it on the road down the road. I think the the only thing I have to add to your uh, characterization of the political forces at play in the current moment is that I think the reason why they announced it on December twenty second and not the end of January or in, fra- in fact, why they even did it, because they really, as you well know, they really did not want to extend the uh, repayment pause, is the failure of the Build Back Better Act. And it was like specifically right after Joe Manchin was like, yeah, I'm not voting for this thing. Right. And the, pol- the politics went into the realm of, oh, shit, we're going into the midterm election year without anything to point to as a great progressive accomplishment. Um, so uh, activists basically demanding this gained another hearing. So, you know, while I don't mean to suggest that, you know, it's good news that the bill, that the Build Back Better Act isn't going to pass. Although, you know, I think we could have a whole podcast episode about that. The fact is that's what created the uh, uh, return to cancellation being an active item on on their agenda. Um, and I think that's, you know, as, as Astra suggests, I don't think that's going to be different in May on May 1st. And if anything, yeah. the politics are going to be kind of even more in favor. At least that's my hope. Well, that's interesting because it satisfies something that I was kind of un- certain about which is that it does seem especially because as we know as you both have mentioned like it's this is uh an administration that's very obsessed with optics whether they're mm-hmm. actually very good at pulling off those optics is a totally different question but <laughs> and they're i not. think that yeah but i think i was surprised in some ways that um this got extended by them when it did considering that all of the other sort of you know optics management stuff that they're doing is to basically at this moment um i know this is not going to be the focus of the episode but basically like to try to downplay the continued existence of the pandemic not really as like obviously they can't downplay the existence of cases or the existence of deaths and hospitalizations but they've done everything they can including last friday rochelle walensky going on uh, i think it was good morning america and saying that like oh every the majority of deaths, in fact, had uh, COVID deaths, in fact, had four uh, underlying conditions or something, <laughs> trying to basically assuage people's fears and say, like, you know, it, it, things are still a problem. But in fact, you know, you don't have to worry about it. So I guess that 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 makes sense that it was actually responding, not even almost to the pandemic, but in this case, situationally to like, I don't know, the whims of the news cycle over the will they won't they of Joe Manchin. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think I mean I think we should talk a lot more about this. But you know, aside from uh, the kind of political tendency to want to say that the crisis is over, that the economy is getting better, and this idea that the re- repayment pause had to be extended belies that. I think the other big thing that's going on now that always is going on when we talk about student debt that underlies a lot of the basically substanceless resistance from political elites to canceling student loans is basically a very complicated but deep seated value judgment about the. Um, morality or or status of um, student debtors and who they are. And, you know, this is kind of bound up in all sorts of political uh, anxieties. Um, You know, so they don't want to be, their view is that student debtors are not a sympathetic constituency. And therefore, if we're seen to do something for student debtors, then that will alienate other uh, constituencies that are uh, uh, of greater political importance to us. I think that's broadly what's going on. That's actually related to a question I, I wanted to ask, because you know, on the campaign trail, Biden obviously made these these big promises like immediate cancellation of $10,000 for every borrower as like COVID relief. And then the cancellation of undergraduate student loans for debt holders who attended like public universities and, and historically black colleges and universities. Um, but like it seemed really quick. I, I want to sort of get you, you guys have been monitoring the the sort of the, the internal politics, like the palace politics of this. Like, it seemed like there was a really quick about face on that, like within, I don't know what, like a month or two of like taking office. Can you like talk a little bit about, because I, I think, you know, we've had Marshall on before and like talking about the the kind of really basic, no no, no brainer sort of politics of this, um, of, of canceling student debt. But I'm curious if you could talk about the um, kind of what's going on that like really shaped that about face very quick about face. Yeah, I mean, this about face, you know, you could see it in what happened when when Biden was asked about this at a town hall. I can't remember when this is because pandemic time is all blurred. But he basically, you know, <laughs> said, you know, I'm not going to do anything more, you know, and I only want I want to cancel student debt if there's, you know, legislation on my desk, which we all know is not going to happen. And then he kind of went on this, <laughs> you know, sh- shaggy dog tale about elite elite debtors who went to UPenn and Ivy League schools. <laughs> the 16th of February, 2021. Student loans are crushing my family, friends, and fellow Americans. Me too. <laughs> the American dream is to kid. succeed, but how can we fulfill that dream when debt is many people's only option for a degree? We need student loan forgiveness beyond the potential $10,000 your administration has proposed. What will you do to make that happen? I will not make that happen. It depends on whether or not you go to a private university or a public university. It depends on the idea that I say to a community, I'm going to forgive the debt, the billions of dollars of debt for people who have gone to Harvard and Yale and Penn and schools, my children. I went to a great school, I went to a state school. I understand the impact of the debt and it can be debilitating. And I think there's an old, a whole question about what universities are doing. They don't need more skyboxes. You know, which completely misrepresents the, I mean, it, it's all the stuff that Marshall, you know, has been elevating for so long, but it just completely misrepresents who actually holds student debt. I mean, this idea that every, uh, you know, borrower in the United States has an experience like an Ivy League student or graduate <laughs> is just completely nonsensical. I mean, the fact is most people who graduate from Harvard, A, there's a few thousand of them a year and they don't graduate with any student debt. You know, they go to Harvard, which has this huge fucking endowment um, and their parents are mostly rich. Right. A lot of them are legacy admissions. So there's a lot of um, 
you know, there's just so many stereotypes they're trading on. And I think it I think it just points to the fact that this wasn't something that Joe Biden ever wanted to do. I mean, the guy's the former senator from Delaware, the credit card capital of the world. We know we all know about his yeah. long legacy mm-hmm. being on the side of creditors and mm-hmm. helping screw over um, student debtors by, you know, quote unquote, reforming bankruptcy protections. You know, he's a big force in the 2005 bankruptcy reform bill. And, you know, his hand was pushed by by grassroots organizing that was picked up by candidates, you know, who outflanked him, right, by Bernie Sanders, by Elizabeth Warren, you know, coming in on this. And uh, and so he's boxed in and made some promises on some medium posts that he probably didn't even read that he doesn't <laughs> want to keep, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I want to dig into this question of, I mean, that that you all got to of, of worthiness, because how they backtrack away from this promise promises by by dismissing debtors. And, you know, I think what you guys said about, um, you know, saying, oh, well, people who are, get COVID are already sick, right? It's so ableist. And it's like, okay, that's the disposable. We don't have to care about that part of the population, right? Debtors are also just, you know, shamed and ignored. So there's a paradox here because on the one hand, they're all elites who went to Harvard and they're all lawyers and doctors or else they're just like, (laughs) you know, these unworthy, lazy people who aren't making enough money to pay back their loans and aren't keeping their end of the bargain. And so the, the, the dismissals are just very slippery. They're very contradictory. They don't reflect the empirical data. And what it does reflect is you know, it's just ideology, right? There's just people who built the student lending system. They're still in power and they, and it's an existential threat to them to have to admit how broken it is and how badly it's fucking people over. Yeah. And if I can extend your comparison, actually, that just, it reminds me so much of the suggestion that, um, like regarding, oh, these people are already sick. The other side of, oh, these people were already sick. They had underlying conditions. They were already disabled and therefore not really valuable to society, quote unquote, should be valued less in terms of like a risk benefit analysis. The other side of that is, oh, also, um, the social safety net is perfect. It catches all of these people and that there are like welfare queens or whatever who are like living off of disability benefits. And that there are like legitimate viable ways to through like, you know, charity work or working for a nonprofit or if you become disabled to have your debt discharged once you become worthy. Right. I mean, this is what Marshall, I think this is actually what we talked to you about the first time we even had you on way back in 2020, which is just this sort of idea of one that canceling student debt is not only giving a handout to a constituency that doesn't need it, right? But that there are all these available avenues for having your debt discharged that totally work and are absolutely functional and that absolutely nothing about the system of collections in and of itself is predatory. And and really, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that as it stands, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, there is really not a really effective way to actually deal with your debt if you cannot make up enough money through selling your labor power to pay it down yourself. I mean, you see people tweeting constantly like, oh, I went to college and graduated in, let's say, 2012. And um, I had to uh, defer payments for a couple of years. I wasn't making enough money. Now, like 10 years later, like I'm looking at 30 grand that's been added to my total, like and more than I ever took out in the first place just from the accrual of interest. Like this is an entire extractive industry. And it's talked about, um, you know, and medical debt is talked about this way often, too. Right. As if like if you really need it enough, there's just a magic way to have it go away. And that those truly needed those like 
truly suffering under the debt burden, they're taken care of, right? And that everybody else who's like sort of suffering and vocalizing about it is just complaining. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. Usually the opposition to uh, student debt cancellation, at least coming from wonks who have to, uh, at the bare minimum, pretend to be serious, is that the <laughs> income-driven repayment programs make it so that borrowers who don't earn enough to pay down their debt aren't suffering because essentially their uh, monthly payments are adjusted downward to uh, account for the fact that they have lower income and then the debt is canceled after a, some period of years following entry into the program. It's uh, you know 10 years for people in public services you alluded to be and then uh, 20 or 25 years for the general population of uh, who would uh, enroll in IDR. Um, and there's a bunch of different ironies about the or, or that relate to the kind of perversity of that argument against student debt cancellation. One is, first of all, that the debt isn't actually canceled for a really long time, if ever. So the, ac the actual amount of people who've benefited from the cancellation at the end of the IDR window is you know, a tiny handful. Um, the Education Department appears to want to expand that to be more than a tiny handful, um, but it's only the uh, uh, public service loan forgiveness where you have any borrowers that are even you know remotely close to the ten-year window. These programs were implemented, or I think. Uh, first enacted in the 1990s in a very small way, but became very widespread in the 2010s. So, you know, we're many years away from the vast majority of borrowers, even those in IDR, from the cancellation window. And meanwhile, their experience, as B characterized it, is balances going up and up. Um, that is basically a kind of permanent state pending the eventual uh, cancellation window. And it undermines the claim that, uh, you know, student debt cancellation is some radical uh, departure from the status quo because those people are already not paying back their loans. So this idea that um, the government is, uh, you know, going to be losing out a great deal, that this is a huge giveaway relative to the status quo to cancel people's debt because they're already in IDR. It's like, no, because they're already in IDR, the government's already not being paid back. So the question is basically, are you kicking the ball further into the future because you can't admit that your policy has failed, you know, or are you going to recognize that uh, people who aren't ever going to pay back their loans shouldn't be suffering under this notional burden? for the intervening time, which has very real effects on uh, on people's lived experience and day-to-day -day lives. Um, you know, I think the policy failure is in part shared by the, I mean, largely shared by the higher education industry that, you know, th there's huge state disinvestment from public institutions. And the way this was viable in the short run is that institutions could raise their tuition uh, <laughs> to compensate for that. And the feds would write a, write students a check, you know, right. to uh, finance that increased tuition uh, in order so that, you know, it wasn't just <laughs> a very tiny elite of students who could go to these institutions and they would have to shrink a great deal. So all of that political economy kind of created the higher education sector that that currently exists, that's basically designed to push as many students through it, charging them as high a tuition as they possibly can, and having that high a tuition as they possibly can entirely financed through federal student loans, especially for uh, uh, students from disadvantaged backgrounds whose parents can't cover the bill, um, and then just kind of pile that up on the federal balance sheet. And then it's like, okay, well, oh, actually, nobody can pay this back um, because they wages have been stagnant for 40 years and right. you know all the promises you made about increased educational attainment causing higher earnings turned out to be false um you know there's just a, a rising and rising 
mountain of, of notional outstanding balance that's never going to be repaid. And so the whole question about IDR as a supposed uh, uh, juxtaposition to debt cancellation kind of falls apart at that point, because it's the question, you know, when, when you put it that way, it's all about, you know, are we just not going to be paid back now? I mean, when are we not going to be, when are we going to recognize that we're not going to ever be repaid now or over a long period of time after right. many, many people have been thrown into a like wood chipper uh, for their entire economic existence. And, and not paying back also often means like you've paid more than the principal. You know, I right. mean, these people right. in right. these programs are, right. are paying right. their principal back and they are still suffering that when, when Marshall said notional burden, I mean, they still have these, even if you're paying zero dollars, you have this debt to income ratio that fucks your life up, you know, because, you know, when you try to get credit to get a mortgage or something, they're like, hey, you owe 50,000, 100,000, whatever dollars. So we have a mm -hmm. lot of members of the Debt Collective who that, you know, it was a huge, huge weight and it's never mentioned by these sort of cheerleaders of IDR. I, I do just want to underscore what Marshall said, you know, this, the, the experts in this space who are against us, right, they point to studies that are based on the idea that these programs work perfectly mm -hmm. and are, are solving the problem. In a vacuum. And that, a tiny little, a perfect bubble somewhere shining up in a castle in the sky. Exactly. And so I think we just, this for me, you know, this <laughs> whole experience has been really challenging. You know, what is an expert? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows yes. how things actually mm -hmm. work? And this is a lot of their fixes. So, for example, it was the Debt Collective that you know, put the borrower defense repayment, which is how you get debt cancellation if you are defrauded by your predatory for public school, you know, it put that on the table. They hadn't even done a rulemaking session to figure out how it is that defrauded borrowers could <laughs> exert that right until a bunch of activists from Occupy Wall Street went and and consulted with lawyers and were like, how do we actually do this? And now the Biden administration is touting, you know, it's $4 billion of loan relief for these predatory for-profit mm. colleges. And it's because we've been working for free for years you know, trying to get right. them to do this. Um, I also think we need to call the bluff. You know, the, they're also boasting about how they've fixed public service loan forgiveness. I mean, as Marshall just said, that's a relatively recent program. The legislation for it passed under George W. Bush. So it's a Republican program, <laughs> you know, and and um, and people at the grassroots have just had to fight and fight and fight to get these, you know, supposed solutions you know, working to the most basic, basic level. It's all just so pathetic and not intellectually honest. So I think there's a, you know, it's just, it's amazing how much of the government's homework we've had to do for them. Uh, even just reminding them of the power they possess to actually, you know, help the borrowers they're supposedly there to serve. So it's been, in that sense, like a real education, I think, for us as as outsiders. Want to augment something Astrid just said because she may not <laughs> she may not want to toot her own horn. Uh, to get back to what we started the conversation with about the sort of political context that we're uh, operating in, I mean, it is basically because student debt and student debt cancellation have an outside constituency that mm -hmm. there's even the remotest possibility of uh, uh, success on this front right. uh, relative to all of the various progressive priorities that were put into the Build Back Better Act or are somewhere elsewhere in the sort of progressive ecosystem, um, you know, where those priorities are basically fronted by, you know, kind of nonprofit institutions that have no constituency and that are bought into the whole process that gives rise to the Build Back Better Act and the bifurcation of those two uh, legislative priorities and then the kind of falling apart that happened over the last few months of that whole strategy, you know, the, they don't know where to go from here, not getting what they want because they have been so bought yes. into the system that, you know, they mm -hmm. can't really say, you know what, we're done here with this administration. You know, we would 
seek to uh, exert a political price for them not serving the agenda that we exist to serve. And, you know, they're just basically nonprofits with no constituency. So, you know, that's what they exist to do is sort of follow behind uh, a political program like uh, a rowboat behind a battleship or something like that and go wherever it goes. Um, it's because, you know, there is a, a, a political constituency that says, no, that's not good enough. Um, you know, when the political we or when the wheels fall off the political wagon, um, you know, that means that there's any hope at all for uh, a just outcome for student debtors in this moment. Well, yeah, it seems like the the complexity of the issue is something that tends to favor the sort of advocates of the status quo, because then, you know, it, it it has a way of limiting the scope of conflict in the in the in the debate that like, you know, you have, you know, a few quotes from New America Foundation or you know Center for American Progress saying like, no, this is actually good. And, you know, <laughs> justifying the administration's program. But luckily, like Debt collective, it, you've been able to like, challenge that you're like pierce that policy bubble in a lot of ways. I think the thing that's interesting to me, and I'm just like curious your take on this, like where, where is the public debate on this now? Or like, what are the, in your mind, the most sort of pernicious arguments about that, that, that kind of get brought up as a reason why uh, we either can't or, sh- I mean, there's two different questions, I guess there's the can't, which is the whole legal situation, which is, seems very dubious. And obviously like there's a whole, sort of narrative about what the lawyers within the administration are saying. And there, there's also the sort of the policy argument that that is being made about why even if we can, we shouldn't. And like, it seems to me that the the defenders of the status quo get off on the headline that looks like, and there is literally a headline or two that looks like this is like, it's just so complicated. It's more complicated than you think. And this is why we can't do it. But I'm just like curious, like what what are the most sort of pernicious policy justifications that you're seeing like emerge either within the administration or its surrogates, uh, you know, presently about about, you know, why why this can't can't be done. And, and, and what's your sort of response to those? I mean, the first thing is it's not complicated. Public <laughs> mm-hmm. colleges should be public as in they should be actually funded by public dollars. You know, this is this is actually something we know how to solve. We have public K through 12. Obviously, it's not perfect. Obviously, it's funded through regressive property taxes. But you know, this is this is. Uh, I think it's actually something sort of hard for them to cloak this in complexity, because once you sort of unpack it for people, they're like, yeah, this is true. I mean, Joe Biden didn't have to graduate buried with student debt. Right. I mean, the historical Mm -hmm. memory doesn't need to be that long to recall an age where things operated in a different fashion. And so, you know, to me, as someone who has been pushing this with my my comrades at the Debt Collective for now going on a decade, you know, it's pretty remarkable how much this has caught fire with the public to just see strangers, to see random people online, to know that there are people with their families, you know, talking in the holidays, thinking, I want that debt cancellation. I deserve it. You know, it was a huge break uh, compared to a decade ago when we were first raising the issue. So a lot of a lot of our work has been, you know, the the legal field and saying, hey, there are these legal mechanisms that you, the federal government, actually have borrowed defense to repayment. Uh, you know, on, which I already mentioned, compromise and settlement, which is the legal authority we're pushing Joe Biden to use to cancel federal student debt now. And then there's, you know, a, alongside that political work is the psychological work to say, no, you shouldn't be ashamed. You know, f- fuck the stigma around being indebted. You know, it's actually the people who built the system who should be ashamed because education is a public good. Oh, yeah. And you should you are actually entitled. Don't think of yourself as a debtor. Think of yourself as entitled to relief, to an opportunity to learn, to fair wages, all of these things. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I think that they know, 
They know this is popular. It's popular with Republicans. Uh, a poll came out that said one in five Trump voters would consider voting Democrat if there was debt cancellation. Uh, a more anecdotal piece of evidence, I have very, very right-wing cousins, and I noticed that they were tweeting things, <laughs> bashing Democrats for you know predictable things that none of us would agree with, and also the fact Biden hadn't delivered on loan forgiveness. I was very struck by that fact. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. So that's why uh, they're on offense and their arguments uh, against us are you know, pretty much bullshit because they what, what's really interesting is whether uh, we're talking about supposed experts working for the American Enterprise Institute or <laughs> Biden <laughs> officials, they're trying to spin debt cancellation as regressive, you know, and the mm-hmm. data is not on their side because truly rich people do not have to borrow to go to college. If you have rich parents, they pay for it. And that means they get a they get a bargain because they're not paying that interest over the long term, right? right? And so that's why they're engaging in these sort of self-contradictory stereotypes of debtors, you know, oh, are they all elite lawyers and and anesthesiologists or actually are they, you know, poor folks? I mean, the the it's that points to the incoherence. But right now their main arguments are, as you said, you know, this kind of it's not legally possible, and that's also wrong because they've been using the authority they can use to cancel federal student loans to cancel the interest as part of this payment pause. So they're wrong there, and they're wrong on uh, this insistence that it's regressive. And I think, you know, the thing is they're making a self-defeating argument because this is the most popular thing, and by they, I mean the Democrats. This is the most popular thing they could do to build momentum into the midterms. But their arguments are pretty poor. Marshall Marshall also, you know, I know obsessively pays attention as and is as, as just enraged by all of their bullshit as I am. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, uh, you know, aside from the, uh, you know, uh, I think the, it was Phil who sort of suggested that we were supposed to rank the perniciousness of these bad arguments. And I, I'm afraid I'm at a loss uh, to, to come up with a, a meaningful way of differentiating them and their badness. Um, I mean, I just noticed uh, uh, Matthew Iglesias, and you can like ring the bell or whatever and bring him up. Was that Morgan, Morgan hit? Yeah, this is the death panel bingo card right there has been fulfilled. Um, I, you know, had this piece in the last week that was, you know, made a couple of points. You know, inter- I mean, it was squarely opposed to student debt cancellation and bad for many reasons. That, you know, it's worth kind of like doing some surgery or not surgery, but like uh, dissection of the um, of the piece because you know, in some ways, he's actually conceding points that Astra just made. So, for example, he said um, both student bar and non-borrowers are heterogeneous groups. Like that is reflects a victory of those of us who have said that yeah. um, student debt cancellation is not regressive because he's recognizing that it's not a bunch of rich people. You know, the, the usual claim is like student borrowers are rich and people who don't have student debt are poor. And so if you cancel student debt, it's a transfer from the rich to the poor. So saying that they're both heterogeneous groups acknowledges that that's not the case. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing was that, uh, you know, or I should say the, the the argument that he's kind of resorted to or retreated to for why we shouldn't cancel student debt, um, I guess, is twofold. One is that we're not also going to enact free college at the same time. So that that definitely goes in the category of pernicious arguments against, to my view. I think the coalition that has uh, pushed student debt cancellation is squarely behind uh, treating higher education as a public good, as Astra uh, referred to. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the idea that 
like, oh, well, you didn't get item one on your agenda. So therefore you shouldn't, you should also not get item two. Um, you know, it doesn't make a lot of political sense. You know, the usual argument that they'll put forward is, okay, fine. We, we acknowledge we're not going to collect that $1.7 trillion of debt that's already outstanding that we're definitely not going to collect, as I said earlier. Um, so we'll wipe that away. But we're, you know, with absent some major reform to the higher education system, that number is just going to start ticking upward the day after um, the debt cancellation, um, you know, which are you know, broadly speaking, I think is right. I would say the political dynamic that those of us who want student debt canceled are hoping to obtain, not just the reduction in the misery of current student debtors, um, is, you know, a recognition that the current political economy of higher education is basically pumping federal money into institutions so that they can uh, continue to charge high tuition and expand their enrollment or just, you know, sort of usher a larger and larger chunk of the population into through their doors, meaning that they have to notionally take on this debt. Um, and, you know, one hopes that seeing the federal government acknowledge that they're never going to collect up one, the existing $1.7 is going to induce Congress to think like, okay, well, you know, there's something wrong here. We need, um, you know, a different, you know, some conditions put on the blank check. You know, hopefully those conditions would be like free college in exchange for actually giving people an education. Um, you know, but like that's part of the political claim. It's not it's not like the absence of free college means that there's no political logic to canceling mm -hmm. student debt. Um, you know, quite the contrary. Um, and then, you know, Iglesias is also saying, well, it's it would, you know, the economy is already operating at full employment, so it would just be inflationary to cancel student debt. I don't I don't think that's a, that's a correct argument. I also don't think that, it, you know, this kind of I mean, I, I guess that leads over into the sudden inflation panic that we have that means that progressive policies can't be enacted. Larry Summers um, said that too, right? In his tweet storm, his Christmas Eve right. tweet storm. Right, mm -hmm. right, right. As, and, and I had, I mean, the one that actually enraged me most, although I, it shouldn't, uh, was Josh Barrow, you know, who was kind of crowing about, um, you know, how inflation is a big threat, society is falling apart, look at all the crime <laughs> uh, that's oh uh, afflicting like Salvatore Ferragamo in downtown San Francisco <laughs> or something like that. Um, you know, we need to, you know, take action uh, to, uh, uh, you know, restore order. And that involves, you know, gigantic increases in police budgets. And I was like, well, what about student debt? And he's like, I don't care at all about that was basically his response. So <laughs> that's, that, that's a statement about, you know, obviously like this kind of, uh, austerian inflation mongering, inflation panic as a, you know, all purpose cudgel to defeat progressive political movements, you know, that, I mean, they're just trying to sort of rerun the Volcker shock at this point, um, you know, and stop uh, uh, workers from uh, uh, striking, from demanding higher pay, from quitting. Um, and I would say, you know, because of the sort of reactionary politics of that, you know, that's bleeding over into the student debt and higher education uh, policy world. Um, you know, it's an interesting, just a, a sort of minor aside to, to close this out. Um, I discern that economists who study higher education by and large are becoming more favorable to student debt cancellation, recognizing that, you know, all of the other supposedly technocratic fixes that have been put in place have actually uh, not worked the way they were supposed to. I mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say that economists are pro-student debt cancellation by and large, but at least the ones who actually study the higher education system, um, I would say, are, are like very slowly moving in that direction. On the other hand, the economists who previously cared nothing about student debt at all or higher education and are just inherently reactionary are kind of becoming more attuned to student debt cancellation and student debt in general as like a site of political conflict and specifically a place where the progressives need to be 
uh, smited, uh, you know, in their in their usual way. Um, you know, that's how I would characterize uh, Summers, for example. It's like, uh, you know, he's just sort of like because he's become the all-purpose right-wing critic of the Democratic administration because he didn't get the job he wanted. You know, this is part of Democratic politics now, and so he has to sort of mouth the uh, same kind of script that uh, that the rest of these people are uh, reading from. I did get a I got a text message yesterday from a friend who is very involved in. Democratic Party politics and, um, you know, leading up to the midterms. And she actually texted me and just said, you know, what do you say to the argument that student debt cancellation tells a story to the public that Democrats prioritize college educated people at a time when the college non-college divide is intense? And so I think that's probably something we're going to hear more about, right? Like, you know, to show its bona fides and how much it stands up for the working class, the Democrats can't st- cancel student debt. This goes with this whole idea that it's elite. And so that is sounds like the J.D. Vance line. Yes. And so that means, yeah. you know, and so it, and that's where the Democrats and, you know, this is where the, the two parties really you know align in their um, just refusal to do anything that, you know, is is redistributive because we don't hear that when we, they're talking about the salt tax or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, and it's always with higher education policy, the means tested number. And this is the same with their proposal to cancel all student debt or not a proposal, but Joe Biden's promise to cancel all student debt for undergraduates from public universities and HBCUs. Right. It was means tested at one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. Right. But for other mm-hmm. programs, right, you know, right. suddenly you're 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 working class until you make four hundred grand. So, you know, they're definitely even even though they're paying attention to the to the grassroots. And I think, as as Marshall says, you know, some experts are kind of coming around to the fact that these fixes aren't working. There is a core of uh, the kind of neoliberal, you know, center and they have their and the right wing is is with them that is just so resistant to doing this. Yeah. And I mean, the when people start like using that point, like the one that you brought up from Matt Iglesias, Marshall, of saying, you know, well, part of the problem is we can't cancel student debt because college isn't free yet. So like if we cancel some debt now, then that's going to like fuck over people later, right? Who are still going to have to find a way to afford the, uh, you know, really high burden of tuition. It's like it is a classic, like perfect, good uh, being perfect, being the enemy of the good argument. But it, at the same time, it is also, you know, really trying to defend what I think appears to be almost like at the level of like an industrial agricultural or mining operation. But instead of like growing food or extracting like minerals, they are like growing and extracting debt instead of financing education. Like the whole fact of education is like so completely like abstracted from actually like the conversation around student loans and what is going on with debt right now in general, because I I think also when you start to piece it out, right, it becomes very obvious how much that is a straw man. But as it stands, it's sort of like this construction of of needing to uh, make sure that we're like only giving uh, aid to the vulnerable is actually obscuring like this vast system of extraction. Well, I I mean, I think also that line in particular shows to what degree they are at least in some in by some interpretation backed up into a a corner rhetorically, because I mean, I mean, to, to make an analogy, I cannot imagine someone like Matt Iglesias or any of these other sort of like, you know, uh, general intellect, like I'm I'm the expert on on whatever I choose to speak on <laughs> wonks saying something like, well, 
why would you cancel all medical debt if you're not going to do Medicare for all? Why would you cancel all medical debt if you won't, um, you know, make hospitals agree to standardize prices or or something? something. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's the kind of thing where you're like in defending the sort of debt burden, right? You're actually defending this vast system that's just built (laughs) for like the creation and cultivation and extraction of debt, actually. I mean, I think it's important to uh, to emphasize that point because uh, Iglesias is saying, you know, we can't, we shouldn't cancel student loans because we're not wholly reforming a uh, totally screwed up uh, higher education system. <laughs> Meanwhile, he, you know, in in so doing, it's like a, a performative act or whatever that's called in philosophy. You know, aligning yourself with exactly the political forces keeping that system that you're condemning in place. Right. Exactly. No, and 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 this isn't just about uh, student debt too, because this is ultimately right now. I think the pandemic is obviously like a very good example of this, right? Because not only does like education really dictate your employment circumstances right now, especially during COVID, and therefore dictate your medical risk because it dictates your exposure to COVID. It also is going to have some control over what kind of um, medical debt burden you're going to end up with because education uh, has a lot to do with whether or not you're going to get a job that has health insurance or not, or whether you're going to have to pay out of pocket for all sorts of things because you like haven't been able to, uh, you know, it's like how much debt do you want to take on in order to be able to like earn the right to take on less debt in the future <laughs> is essentially the gamble yeah. that like yeah. we give teenagers right now and we tell them to make a decision about that then as if they could plan for their future medical expenses and make some sort of idea about what debt burden they might ideally end up with by like you know age 65 when they retire for example yeah and i i mean to get back to this idea that you know on the one hand student debtors are all uh out of touch elitists on the on the coast and on the other hand they're um stupid people who enrolled in uh underpaid major and took bad classes and now can't find a job because of their stupidity um you know the the entire the higher education system the like general economic punditry uh state legislatures have all instructed people to take on student loans in order to qualify themselves for social provisioning because like those things should not be universal so you know in order to uh have a somewhat secure life have access to health insurance you know this is the route you should at age 17 or 18 or whatever, take on student loans, enroll in higher education, and that will lead to a job that gives you all of those things. Okay, 10 or 15 or 20 years later, you have the same exact amount of debt as you had when you enrolled, uh, you know, possibly even more as you've uh, accumulated interest. And then those same f- forces in society are turning around and saying, oh, well, you, you shouldn't have that debt canceled because you screwed up by making bad choices, exactly the choices we instructed you to make. So that's I would say at the heart of my kind of moral revulsion for this entire argument is, you know, right, the only people who have no, yeah, I mean, the only people who have any, who, who should never at any time have any accountability for uh, uh, the uh, decisions that they've made and the advice that they've given are the people in control of the entire system who've given exactly the advice that got us into this mess. Exactly. Yeah. People right. are doing no. what they're told. I mean, I think what's so interesting about the Iglesias and the free college thing, you know, I was on that show Rising recently and there's the right wing co-host and he kind of tried to do a similar kind of gotcha like, well, don't we need to have, <laughs> you know, handle the college costs? I'm like, yeah, you know, free college. Okay. Now you're a comrade. Welcome aboard, you know. Um, but why, why, you know, I think of so much energy and so have my collaborators into the debt collective is not because we're obsessed with debt per se, but because we saw a strategic opportunity to get people to connect their immediate conditions 
and their stresses and their anxieties and their needs to public provisions, right? To, to public solutions, right? So yeah. it's, it is, it's a short leap to go from, fuck, I can't pay my student debt or why are these medical bills piling up to, we should have free college. We should have Medicare for all. We should have universal healthcare. And that is, that's exactly why we're doing this. That's exactly why we're building a union of debtors. You know, we're not, it's not just that we want debt abolition, though we do. It's that we think that it's a, it's a way of kind of, you know, uh, getting people to to reconceive their personal condition in the political context and realizing that the problem is not that they live beyond their means, but they're denied the means to live. And what we need is a political force in this country that's that's pushing for example those policies. And as Marshall said, and I you know I really appreciate his comment. You know, if you don't have actual real public <laughs> pressure, you know, if you don't have right. organized people to counter organized money, you're never going to get these things, no matter how smart the wonks are, you know, that's it's. Just, and so that's, that's why we're doing this, you know, and we are aiming to build a political, you know, force that can complement labor organizing. You know, these are, I think these are really complementary movements because debt is a form of wage theft. You know, you're sort of underpaid at the job and then you're robbed because you're having, you're having to borrow for these basic things. You know, and so that's the vision. So the fact that our enemies are kind of putting the pieces together, yeah. so I actually kind of see it as like <laughs> a, a, a credit to our theory of change. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, building a, a debtors union. I, I think this is this nicely complements this conversation we had with um, Justin Feldman, um, the epidemiologist, um, a few uh, weeks ago, in which we were sort of talking about a lot of the challenges that, uh, you know, are presented to the sort of, I think, the, the traditional understanding of like uh, organizing working class people uh, that the left has had for, you know, a century or more is, is at, at the situs of work. Um, and, you know, obviously that still is very important. And, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of ground to be gained in terms of unionization. But I wonder if you could talk, I, mean, I think one of the other things we said is that like, there are also challenges for which that form of organizing is really kind of inadequate because of mm-hmm. the way that um, you know, the issues sort of present themselves to people in the way that, that oppression kind of like works. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about more about your, the, maybe how you came up with the idea for like a debtor's union and like how you see it, uh, kind of working to, to play this role when I, I think the convention, at least my sort of conventional understanding is that, you know, in, in sort of the great recession era, this is sort of one of the most difficult things is like maintaining this organizational infrastructure, um, over time of, of, of people who are sort of organized around this issue? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a big question. I'm going to try to be concise. I mean, I, I've i done other things in my life. I've, I've written a couple books at this point. I've made some philosophical documentaries, you know, and the hardest thing, the most challenging thing I've ever been part of is trying to figure out this question of how do you build an organization? How do you actually help working people have power under these conditions where people are absolutely disempowered and where the politics of divide and conquer have so much fucking money behind them, you know, and where you know, solidarity is being sabotaged everywhere you look purposefully. I mean, I wish, you know, if I could, if I could snap my fingers, you know, I would transform American labor law. I would have 99% union density. You know, I think that that is there's, you know, workers under capitalism have an enormous amount of power. But, you know, we we live in a iteration of capitalism where finance is really central. So part of this came from, you know, the opportunity of Occupy Wall Street and wanting to maintain the, the momentum of Occupy, recognizing that 
that formation obviously wasn't sustainable. People were going to occupy their way into, you know, a different economic and political paradigm. But what it what it was this opening that showed there were other people who wanted to work on the issue of economic justice. And so that's where our kind of and and it also was an illustration of how central debt was because Occupy Wall Street happened because of debt. It was the mortgage crisis. The vast majority of people who showed up at encampments were indebted. So it felt like there was just this this potential there, something there. I had, you know, the nerd I am, I had been reading a lot about neoliberalism. I'd read my David Harvey, you know, and and at a certain point I was like, I don't want to read about this anymore. I want to try to do something with this, you know, how, okay, so what do we do? How do we engage? There's this new way of organizing the economy where finance is really central, where people are forced to individually debt finance, which should be public goods. Well, with this new way of organizing the economy comes the possibility of a new way of organizing people. There's no guarantee, but... Debt is an asset. What if debtors came together, recognized themselves in a, a, a new kind of collectivity and tried to wield power together? Uh, and again, it's, you know, we're not saying it's the end all and be all, but it feels like a political formation that's very complementary because there's a real advantage to organizing people in a workplace. You're in a workplace. <laughs> you know, you know who your target is. Your target is the boss. And sometimes it can be the state. But, you know, but then again, people are precariously employed in this country. Labor laws you know, prevents a lot of people who are technically workers from organizing. Uh, people aren't at their jobs sometimes for very long, whereas debt sticks to you. So debt connects people across geography. It connects people across age. It connects people across race, across gender, you know. Um, and in the case of student debt, you know, you have one very clear target for the vast majority of it, and it's the Department of Education. It's the federal government. Uh, and so it began really by studying debt you know, we wrote a book called the Debt Resistors Operations Manual, which literally chapter by chapter was like, here's paid chapter on paid loans, credit cards, student debt, mortgages, trying to educate ourselves. So we've consciously built a, a membership organization. Our, our, our reason d'etre is not to be in meetings in Washington, D.C. It's to build debtor power. And we do that by intervening in the public discourse, you know, trying to shift the narrative, move the Overton window, whatever. We do this by radically asserting rights through innovative legal strategies, through policy work where we try to figure out what's actually politically feasible while pushing the envelope. And then, yeah, building building chapters and branches. Uh, and so we invite people to, to join us and, and to join us knowing that this is an experiment. I mean, debtors unions have not existed before. And there's something that the, that is made possible by the economic conditions that we're living under today. Well, and I think the nice thing, too, about focusing on debt versus the sort of site of employment is not only do you have this sort of expansion beyond the narrow, like sort of workplace relationship, but it also does one of the things that's, you know, one of my biggest critiques of like the left's focus on labor as a sort of end all be all vehicle for political change, which is that the labor movement organizing that we can do must necessarily exclude uh, anyone who's not in the workforce, whether they are mm. disabled or they are too young to be in the workforce because they're a child or whether they are older and retired or if they're someone who is institutionalized. Right. And so you have this um, capacity, right, because regardless of like your employment situation, like a body can accrue debt even when you have no other legal rights, right? You know, like um, infants accrue debt in the neonatal ICU, right? And they never are employed. Or carceral debt, for instance. Right, or yeah. carceral debt, right, exactly. So all these other kinds of debt that actually debt itself can become this focus and nexus sort of away from the actual necessarily 
limiting framework of seeing things as needing to be worker driven, right? Because there is also this respectability argument that's tied up in things being worker driven. There is this idea that someone who is a worker is someone who, you know, is responsible, right? Or is accountable. And I think that in embracing this sort of other framework of talking about debtors, both in like rejecting the stigma around it, but in also saying that this is like a cause for solidarity or that this is some sort of like point for people to unionize and come together around rather than being a private, individuated, um, very solitary experience. Right. I think it's really important because we need ways to organize and we need ways to think about politics and society that aren't so tied into this like very, very na- narrow framework, actually, that we get by tying everything to these these sort of worker frameworks. Yeah, I, I'll just plus one what you said. I mean, I, I just think we desperately need new 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 strong bonds of economic solidarity. And that's what this opens up. So the debt collective is working on a carceral debt initiative focused right now using consumer protection law in California, where basically we found that the bail bonds companies there uh, have systematically broken consumer protection laws. And so all of the past accumulated bail debt is legally invalid. But again, they're not going to acknowledge that unless people fight for it. Right. But this is you're, you're exactly right that so many aspects of our lives are, are sites of extraction, whether we're employed full time or we're precariously employed or we're quote unquote gig workers or we're you know, uh, at home for various reasons. And, you know, there, there ha- we have to think creatively about how we can wield economic power nonetheless, because none of us are outside the economy. And so that's what we're, we're trying to do to try to create a new coalition that can complement and strengthen all of these other movements that are so valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I think also that's why I appreciate that, you know, your focus is also not just so narrowly tied into stuff that is like actionable or immediately doable, right? And you've been someone for a very long time who's been advocating for a total debt jubilee. Do you think you could explain what that is real quick for people who might not be familiar? I mean, a jubilee is an ancient idea, it was, you know, uh, mentioned in the, in the Bible as a kind of biblical commandment. Jubilee was also the word that was used by formerly enslaved people for for the period after emancipation, Jubilee. And uh, it conjures this idea of a cancellation of debts and a rebalancing of power between the rich and the poor. So a Jubilee is not just this negative thing of abolishing debts, but also providing what people need to survive and and thrive. And the Debt Collective has always had a, a very expansive take on this, you know, that that uh, debt should be canceled. I, I, I think... Since Marshall's here, you know, it'd be interesting to get into the question of mortgage debt, just because that housing is uh, so deeply uh, is distributed in such deeply fucked up ways in the society. Uh, but absolutely, you know, uh, debt cancellation, mass debt cancellation, coupled with these systemic reforms is really critical. So I would I would ask people to watch this little animation I just released on the Intercept website, collaboration with Molly Crabapple called Your Debt is Someone Else's Asset. Uh, that you know condenses two thousand years of jubilee history into seven minutes. You know, part of the power of that phrase jubilee. I guess this is where I'll wrap this thought up. Is just that it's it's got that positive element. It's jubilation. It's uh, it's the idea that you know we're taught this is not a, a purely negative enterprise of just getting a weight removed, but really of of restructuring our our societies. You know, and it's something that has a has a deep historical precedent. No, absolutely. And I wonder if maybe actually to close this out, we could, because as we were talking about, there's so much air and so much room for all of the reasons why we 
can't uh, cancel student debt or why we can't do anything to do a debt jubilee, do a debt jubilee, jubilee, vacate medical debt, vacate all, you know, carceral debt, et cetera. And, you know, Marshall, since you've done such good inventory of all the bad takes, I wonder if we could get some good takes for you as to why this is good from an economic perspective. Well, I think people shouldn't have to suffer under a uh, giant cloud their whole lives to do the things that we that are basically necessary <laughs> to live uh, a secure life as a human being. Um, and education falls into that category, especially now as the labor market has been credentialized. So, you know, we're on the one hand, ushering people through higher education and forcing them into it by eliminating uh, uh, labor market opportunities that don't uh, rely on it. And, uh, you know, many uh, employers and workplaces have moved to uh, credentialize their workforce because they're basically getting their workers to pay to train themselves when that would previously have been uh, uh, training provided by the employer. Um, so I don't think that's just, I mean, to, you know, partly answer that question and partly br- uh, answer the question Astra put to me, um, you know, my view of housing is basically the same, that people need a place to live in order to be a human being and that that should be available mm-hmm. to them regardless of debt. So I do think that the the comparison is apt in that, you know, what people get when they purchase a house by uh, uh, taking on a mortgage is access to a secure place to live or not just access, they get a secure place to live that is rent controlled. Like once you've got the mortgage, your rent's not going to go up for 30 years. Um, You know, that is, and, and, you know, it's super, super uh, controversial when demands for rent control are made by people who don't have access to mortgages because they don't have access to down payments. So, you know, the idea that the very small number, you know, in the grand scheme, things, a very small number of people who don't have, have uh, who don't own their own ho- homes, who have access to rent control, you know, that's viewed as like a crime against the free market and a great um, <laughs> entitlement that, that is undeserving, that harms the rest of us, that, you know, that small group of people might have some security. Meanwhile, you know, the majority of people have the security uh, of uh, of living in their own home where where the rent doesn't go up and they're not threatened by uh, gentrification in the same way that that renters are. So it's basically like the only reason you should or the only mechanism by which you can be economically secure um, in this society is to have the down payment on a house that you can put down to get a mortgage. And that's extremely inequitable. I mean, you know, I'm just basically repeating what the definition of capitalism right. is, which is that, you know, you need to have money in order to, to, to be secure. And I don't think that's a just system. Right. And all else, you know, you're supposed to buy through your theoretical ability to access an education and then access a better job because of that. And then you can buy higher levels of survival. But I think, you know, ultimately, like a conversation about trying to um, rethink what the role of debt actually is supposed to be in society is really what we're talking about now, because it's not just, you know, we, we've like assumed that we want to use debt as the way to finance getting people housing, right? And that's been a, a decision that we've made that's been very um, detrimental and harmful for, for decades now. It's like very, the evidence from that is very clear. And the same goes for education. The same goes for medical care. The same goes for keeping yourself out of jail, et cetera. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that I think right now, what I really appreciate about both of you your work is that it like actually gives me opportunities to think about what 
other ways of giving people access to like the means of survival could be right outside of like this debt financial framework, which is really just like a ultimately at the end of the day, it was an economic preference in order to extract profit. Yep. And yeah, I think that's a really pr- a profound point that we should highlight. Like debt exists as a mechanism by which to extract profit for the creditor. It's a wealth right. transfer. I mean, that's the thing. It, debt is a means right. of wealth transfer from the poor to the rich through these monthly payments. And so it's just accelerating inequality. And then as people pile up this huge sums, they look for places to invest it. And they're that much more invested in destroying public goods and, and these mechanisms of like basic survival and security. So it's very perverse. Which is, I think, why seeing these moments when, uh, you know, in the context of the pandemic, the government chose to uh, defer or forestall um, certain, at least certain types like student debt for mm-hmm. a period of time as such. Obviously, there are so many, I mean, over the last like two years on this show, we've talked uh, about constantly all of these these moments where um like despite the fact that uh you know i think everyone who says they that there's so much to have learned from the pandemic right uh is mostly i think <laughs> suggesting that they weren't paying attention before the pandemic i think that this was you know this is an instance something like um the the pause even in the first place is something really enlightening in terms of how not only contingent all of these mm-hmm. uh, relations are um, and the, the the kind of ever looming presence of debt in our lives, but also how really like the, the state itself is mobilized specifically to continue to enforce those relations. Or I wanna, facilitate those relations. And facilitate. Right? I mean, yeah. I want to, I want to um, read something actually that I found uh, to be a really, a really nice way of thinking about this. This is um, something that Astra wrote in 2019, um, when um, the the Sanders campaign released a statement on medical debt, their plan on medical debt. And this is talking specifically about the secondary market for medical debt, but I think it applies really generally in terms of just a, a really, I think, you know, again, expansive and enlightening way of thinking about what is possible within uh, stopping the, the role of the state, for example, in upholding it. So uh, this is the quote. Um, The secondary market for medical debt only exists because the state enforces the legitimacy of the debts in courts of law. The government should start to treat medical debt the way it treats debts to the mafia, which is to say such debts have no legal legitimacy. If the state stopped (laughs) defending the property rights of predators, the problem of medical debt would disappear. Absolutely. Someone should listen to me, man. No, (laughs) I mean, you you could you could say that, you know, medical debt can only be you know, statute of limitations is like three minutes. I mean, I don't know. To me, this is like, you know, there's so many creative things. If 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 progressives were as creative as corporate lawyers are tend to be, uh, it, it would the world would be a, a lot more fun and a, a lot more just. Um, I, I hope that I can come back on the show like a year from now because I have a medical debt strategy that's that's not quite ready for prime time but that I'm really excited about oh, so I just want to yeah. put a put a flag there. You know, I'm I'm struck by your mention your your com- comment about the payment pause and the word pause because I do want to highlight that in May uh you know in, in the spring of 2020 there was a lot of jubilee going on. There was a lot of debt relief for for companies, right? This is what the right. the forgivable mm-hmm. uh PPP loans or whatever they were. And there was also a huge amount of money, you know, invested in stabilizing the corporate debt market. So that is something we also can't, we can't forget that the state mobilized really quickly uh, to bail certain debtors out. It just wasn't, it wasn't, 
you know, it wasn't ordinary people. Absolutely. Right. Preferences are made quite obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you both so much for coming on today. Yeah, it has great. been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Well, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. And um, we hope to have you back, Astra, to talk about uh, this medical debt strategy. I'm very excited to hear about it once it's ready. Pull back the curtain. (laughs) Going to be cool, um, I think. I don't know. It's it's another crazy idea, but that's we just have to try. That's the thing we have to. Yeah, we just have to keep trying. Yeah, they're not going to be creative for us, (laughs) right? That's (laughs) that's been made abundantly clear. Yeah. Well, and um, listeners, if you would like to follow Astra, she is at Astra Disastra on Twitter. And Marshall is, did I pronounce that right, actually? Yeah, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and Marshall is at econ underscore Marshall. Astra and Marshall, thank you so much again for taking the time to sit down with us today. It's been so nice. And uh, listeners, if you'd like to become a patron to get access to all of our bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And um, if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we'll see you on Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we'll see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
And the thing I do in terms of student debt that's accumulated is provide for changing the existing system now for debt forgiveness if you engage in volunteer activity. For example, if you were, uh, if, if you're teaching school, after five years, you'd you have $50,000 of your debt forgiven. If you worked in a uh, battered women's shelter, if you worked and so on, 